Hello, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing... I'm doing all right. Um, I saw. I watched a movie last night. I have not yet logged it on Letterboxd. This oh, is okay. so here. You know what? I'm, I want to get our. Well, actually, I don't even know if I need to get our uh, guests' opinion on this because our guest very famously does not do star ratings on Letterboxd. Just like or not like. But our guest is uh, the Battleship Attention third chair, Scott and I. Scott. Sup. Um, but th- so the first part will apply to you. Okay. I, as a rule, won't log a movie on Letterboxd until I've slept on it. I will. Interesting. I will do it the next day, and that's when I'll do my star rating and everything. Do you, either of you have rules like that? I would say anything that you ask, if we have a rule similar to yours, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> um, I know. I once wanted to do an episode about our little, like, movie-related, like... I don't know idiosyncrasies, yeah. but I'm not sure if you guys you, have enough. <laughs> I think you can do that episode. <laughs> just on my. I own. don't think you need us for it. Yeah. Um, no, I mostly just vlog when I remember. I try to do it right after I see it, um, but it's not always practical. Um, and the next question, because I I watched the movie last night. And I watched. Um, I'm, I'm not going to remember both the uh, directors' names, Jimmy Chin and anyway Emily Chai something's uh, Nyad. And as of this recording, I have not logged it yet. Yeah. And I was thinking about my star rating now, and what now, it means. How are we defining logging it? Does that mean, like, adding it into, like, the ranking oh, right, of your Oh, right, because you don't do a diary thing. You just mark it as watched. Correct. Right? So, yes. um, yeah, setting that aside, like, the, what I want to talk about is what the star ratings mean okay. to you. Because I was thinking about how, like... I'm probably going to end up giving Nyad three stars, which is technically positive, but I consider damning with faint praise. Um, it is insane that you're thinking about this, because just yesterday, I was looking at other people's letterboxed. I'm like, okay, at what point does their star rating start to feel negative to me? Uh, and it's three stars. Three and a half. It's like, all right. We're getting close. Well, I once heard, oh, oh, oh. I once saw someone on on Twitter or Blue Sky or something describe three and a half stars as the coward's rank rating, <laughs> and I fully like I do it sometimes, but that is like it is fully that. like in terms of like your review at work, three and a half stars right. is meets expectations. <laughs> That's yeah. what that is. Four I, stars for me is exceeds expectations, yeah. and then I've said before that the difference between four and a half and five stars for me is not something I could put into words. I just, uh, I just absolutely. know. I just know. And I think for me, uh, I agree with that 100%, but also I feel like for me, three to three and a half is, I know this is not very good, and yet some part of me likes it, you okay. know? Um, and that's what that extra half star is. Like, it's not enough. I didn't like it so much that I'm able to ignore some of the issues with it and get it up to four stars. But I can't, in good conscience, give it three when I enjoyed it this much. Right. That's right. kind of how I look at it. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the negative scores, I feel like I, I, I then get into the mode of, like, I feel like if it's three or above, I'm putting it for my own, like, future reference so I can yeah. go back and see. 
once you get below three, it actually becomes like, how much do I want to warn people away <laughs> from this movie? Uh, so if I think a movie is really like a waste of time, or it maybe is will have a negative effect on the world that's a half star <laughs> yeah anything else in there is just sort of like it like the difference between four and a half and five it's kind of a feeling as to whether i do one one and a half two two and a half yeah. it's based on uh on how angry it makes me yeah. usually yeah <laughs> um like if i give something two stars and i'm angry at myself for not rating it lower it's like all right well that means it probably should be lower than that right <laughs> uh all right well that's what i wanted to talk about at the top, we have a lot of episode to get to, but first I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. Today, yes, I know it's like mid-February at this point, but yes, I am still um, in 2023 mode, as I am with movies right mm. now. I'm still watching 2023 movies. Uh, so I uh, re-listened to I th- what I think is the sophomore album by a band called Caligram. It's called Ex Sister. Uh, I'm guessing that's some sort of... Oh, no. Uh, sorry. No, that's one of the songs. Position Momentum is the name of the album. Um, it's called Position Momentum. And uh, I often feel, even though I've been like... Spend, I've spent a lot of time listening to metal for the last like decade of my life, but I've always fallen short of calling myself a metalhead. I think because like that sort of world is so gatekept and so insular yeah. that I don't want to like. It feels like calling yourself a metalhead is like some sort of like throwing a gauntlet and like at, like asking to be challenged. Uh, and one of the reasons is I I sometimes wonder if my tastes follow trends too much but then also maybe the trends are trends because that's where the music's good i don't know but uh caligram uh, a band that kind of formed during the pandemic which those bands are always interesting to me um in this second album they're very much on trend on on trend with uh, being a sort of punk informed black metal but uh that's so up my alley right now but i don't know is that just because it's the trend i don't know but uh in any case it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the uh, the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, we're back. Yes. Tyler, Scott. Hello. Um, We are, like, really on the runway now to uh, uh, our top ten of the year. Well, we started with, just last week, Scott and Julie's top ten. And now... It's interesting when you said that you're still in 2023 mode. Um, This is how, like, far removed I am from regular people. Is it, like, for me, I don't even understand why a studio would release a movie before March. Like, I just, <laughs> like, when I saw, like, oh, Argyle came out, and now Madam Web or whatever. Yeah. I just think, like, what are you doing? What, 
why why are you doing that <laughs> you, you really should just hold off until the spring right and uh then i realized like oh right not everybody um is obsessed with like seeing everything in 2023 yeah. that they can some people actually want a a lighter uh mainstream movie Counter this time of year well yeah. the box office is so soft this year though that i think yeah. a lot of people are on your <laughs> yeah same wavelength really? True. yeah um yeah but uh there's been some good counter programming so far this year with uh, uh scott and i are both fans of night swim hell yeah not the critical community at large it looked, but, it looked uh, fun to me i really want to see it, it. Audiences seem to be loving the beekeeper. Yeah, um, mysteriously. And uh, I will also recommend to a point that um, we, that that Scott, I think you were just making on Twitter or something recently about how like there's a certain brand of like programmer type movies that don't get appreciated yep. until this uh, is my new like secret cause that I'm yeah. constantly shouting about. Well, I know as a fan of rom-coms and, and stuff uh i know you're not an amazon user but i would recommend upgrade it the uh the oh. rom-com on prime oh i was curious about uh, that as one. is typical of streaming movies i don't think i've heard of this one <laughs> yeah it's um camila mendez who played uh veronica on uh, riverdale uh, i didn't watch riverdale but i think that's what she's best known for uh supporting cast includes marissa tomei and um uh lena olin mm. anyway it's about a woman who um, basically... It's upgraded, just for the listeners. Did I just say upgrade? You just said upgrade. Okay, upgraded, yeah. So it's, it's a woman who like goes on a... For, she's a, an intern on a low-level trip. She gets upgraded to first class and meets a That's handsome right. rich guy and sort of like pretends to be on his level and yeah. uh, financially and they fall in love. It looked I'm there. Deli- it looked yeah. very delightful. Yeah, it's good. Um, so yeah, that's the counter-programming that we're talking about. But that's not what okay. we're talking about here today. Here we are today talking about our personal favorite individual achievements. Now, as I say every year, I'm saying favorite with an asterisk because next week, I have the same speech every year. (laughs) Next week, we'll do Through the Cracks, movies that aren't on our top 10 or even are on honorable mentions, but that uh, we think um, deserve more attention anyway. And I kind of always bring that energy to the individual achievements. Same. Like... Yes, if it were, like when we get to supporting actor, if I were being fully honest, Charles Melton would be my pick. Sure. But a lot of people have been talking about Charles Melton. So and he, and he's a BP nominee. And he's a I, BP. I try to avoid that, too. Um, so um, I'll be going in a, in a, in a different direction. I, I feel like we generally all do some yeah. version of this. Yeah, I also don't have anything that was on my top ten because I oh. just talked about it. And so it's like I don't want to keep repeating myself weeks to come. So. No, yeah, I'm definitely – some of these movies will be in my top ten in a, in a couple weeks. Or might not because I'm still Who watching knows? movies. Yeah. Still catching up. There's a movie that I'll be talking about today that I watched two nights ago. Yeah. Um, so let's kick things off. Scott's going first, but uh, Tyler – what category are we starting with? With let's, which category are we starting? There we go. Thank you. Um, let's start with lead actor. All right. Well, this was an easy one for me because the film very nearly missed my top 10, but it's um, Franz Rogowski in Iris X Passages. Um, undoubtedly the best male performance of the year to me. Um, he So he's playing a filmmaker who's working on his latest film, 
in the midst of which um, he's having strife with his husband that's been clearly been going on for years and years and years. Um, and he meets a young woman played by Del Oxertopoulos whom he sleeps with and uh, quickly leaves his husband for um, surely any of us can relate to leaving anyone for a Del Oxertopoulos. Um, but even uh, Paddington himself, even Paddington himself. Um, but he's just playing on the surface a very despicable character who makes all the wrong choices and just using people in his life. Um, but Rogowski's performance and Iris Sachs writing and direction kind of give him a slight sympathetic edge. Um, Sachs has talked about how the character is semi-autobiographical just in the way that like directors through their profession learn to be able to like have everything they want um, and that can bleed into one's personal life in sometimes dangerous ways. And Rogowski's performance, I mean, he's just like one of the best working actors right now and he's so physically interesting. Um, even shots of him that are just sh- from his back um, are so expressive and strange and weird and kind of give edges to the character that aren't in the dialogue um, or in any more emotive scenes, but um, which he is so captivating throughout even when you're not seeing his face um and in addition to which he just makes a great asshole of a character uh, great asshole is strange to see say for a film in which you probably do his see his actual asshole <laughs> yeah. but um, uh yeah it's a fantastic performance i've seen the film three times now and each time there's more and more layers to it that i i see all right um so my pick for best actor we don't have a best ensemble category in individual achievements because that wouldn't make sense. It's, yeah. on, it's individual yeah. achievements. Uh, but I will say this is kind of a a stand-in for what I'm about to say about this actor applies to most of the like major cast of this movie. So I'm going with Christian Fidel for The Zone of Interest. Um, because he's on the same wavelength as Jonathan Glazer as are the rest of the cast in... The thing that I keep having seen it twice now, the thing that I keep marveling at with Zone of Interest is how it manages to maintain my interest uh, while also never softening the characters or getting into the, you know, there's that old saying that I've brought up before, that you can't make you can't make an anti-war film because by depicting war it like glorifies it or something. Um, that this is a movie that like is about a high-ranking Nazi SS commandant um, that makes him a person, but never makes him uh, in any way forgivable or any way like something that you could that, that you can see the humanity in. He's still a person all the time. Uh, but he's disgusting, and um, yeah, I, I, I said I've seen the movie twice, which is shocking to me because I said after I first saw it that I probably would never watch it again because it's a, it's a stomach churning experience. But then your but, mom came into town, and you were like, you know what? Yeah, my, my, my <laughs> mom anything's to gonna it. get me to see it again. And I also, I went. I hadn't been to the Vista yet yeah, since yeah. it opened, so it was fun to go to the Vista, um, uh, where I had a celebrity sighting. Uh, Tyler, whenever you're finally oh, willing to do Patreons again, I've got so many celebrities. <laughs> oh, me to too. Guess. So, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, now I forgot what I was saying, but basically that's um, uh, that, that's that's what I'm talking about. That uh, uh, I mean, I, I guess 
I know at least one of us in this room has not, well, I know only one of us in this room has not seen Zona Mitra, so I'm guessing some of the listeners haven't, so there's certain things that I want to leave to be discovered. Um, but, uh, um, so I, I want to dance around this, but there's a scene where he and some of his kids are in the, in, in the stream and uh, near their home, which is outside of Auschwitz. And then what are clearly human remains start coming down the stream, dump, oh, like, dump off from Auschwitz. And he's obviously disgusted and panicked to get his kids out of the way of that. Yeah. But also he's responsible for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, being able to play both of those things um, without it becoming either tipping too villainous or too sympathetic, right. just uh, really uh, jiving with the the rigor of Jonathan Glazer's approach. Man, I'm so upset that I haven't gotten to see the movie yet. Like every new thing I hear about it, and I try not to hear that many that much stuff, but every new thing I hear about it just sounds just fascinating and just totally engrossing. Um, okay, so my choice for lead actor is a, an actor that I'm on record as not being the biggest fan of, but I feel like the work he's been doing in the last few years has really turned me around on him. What was Will Patton in this year? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think if I've ever fully turned around on him. I've seen him in some stuff where it's like, oh, that's pretty solid. Um, but uh, no, I'm talking about uh, Joel Edgerton in Paul Schrader's Master Gardener. Um, did you, either of you see Yeah, it? I saw it. I did not. Yeah. Um, did you like it? Um, I was mixed on it. I yeah. don't think it sold the romance. I don't think it overcame the central problem with the romance enough for me to really, um, know, or really grapple with it in a way. I could see that. Yeah. Um, but I almost feel like that's a little bit on purpose. Anyway. I know. People keep saying that. I'm like, eh. Yeah. It's, it's tough to know. Yeah. With Paul Schrader, you never know. Yeah, for um, sure. But, uh, so I won't spoil anything but Joel Edgerton is a uh, his character is a man with a past and when we discover what the past is it's even worse than we thought it was going to be but it's the kind of performance that just pushes all of my pleasure buttons because <laughs> it's someone who is very aware that he has a past and is trying to be better than that and trying not to be discovered and all of that stuff um, and as a result it's a very it's a very careful performance. Like, this is a guy who just everything about his life is about holding stuff in and not letting too much of himself uh, show. And it just kind of naturally comes with uh, feelings of shame and guilt uh, and just, I don't know, just, uh, he seems to always be holding himself in check. Not necessarily because he's still is that person from his past but because he worries that he, he absolutely could be or if he's not careful he could fall back into that on top of he doesn't want anyone else to find out and so it's just such a it's just such an in the moment perform, performance like at any moment uh, 
you feel like he is right on the edge and not on the edge of like exploding but on the edge of just uh, letting everything come out and uh, like it, it means everything to him to not let that happen and it's just uh, I feel like you don't see performances like that very much and uh, and it really uh, it really worked for me yeah and I think um what I do find affecting about the movie and what I find have increasingly found affecting about Paul Schrader's movies in general is that kind of like element of you're just talking about withholding, but also that he, he, and you see this with taxi driver and light sleeper and card counter and first reformed and so many Paul Schrader movies of like guys who are trying to hold something back about themselves, but end up finding salvation by letting it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've honestly found that somewhat therapeutic. Obviously I'm not going to go be, shooting people up like his protagonists yeah. do but there, I think there's an element of that that I think is a real moral underpinning to his movies that yeah. um, is sometimes under discussed and would you say that also applies to affliction I, feel I like still haven't seen affliction oh, I like that might be the exception that proves the rule okay interesting because um, yeah it's all about this guy not wanting to let himself be his like abusive alcoholic father okay and then there and it just keeps keeps slipping through and you're like oh boy i don't like where this is headed um but yeah you should check it out i i love it i know it's been on my list for too long now um it's interesting you say that you have not always been a fan of joel edgerton because i very much agree um but also kind of turned a corner with 13 lives um, damn right i thought he was quite good yeah really in good that. in that yeah um so yeah maybe i should and i i never saw I never saw The King, but my friends who, uh, my friends who are fan of fans of that kind of thing say he makes a really great Falstaff. Hmm. So I'm really curious about that. Um, okay. Yeah. What's our next category? The next category is going to be um, screenplay. All right. Stop, and this can be uh, adapted or original. Yeah. This was um, a film that kept bouncing around my honorable mentions, my top 10, all kinds of things, but figure this is a good place to spotlight it. And it's uh, Christian Petzold's A Fire. Um, I, I was kind of, this was a film I was kind of mixed on at first. Um, Petzold has built a, such a good reputation of crafting really unique and captivating and like galvanizing endings to his films. And I think the ending of A Fire is a little soft, um, but the texture of the film and the way he builds the various conflicts in it um, is so intricate and interesting and counterintuitive. Um, and his characters are so rich and fascinating. Um, it's about a writer um, who's working on a second novel. His first was like some measure of success, but he's really stuck on a second novel. And he goes kind of on this retreat to like a family friend's cabin um, with a friend of his. Uh, when they get there, to discover a woman's been staying there who the, the friend had like accidentally double booked the cabin. And so already his like whole sense of calm has been thrown off. Um, she's played by Paula Beer. Um, and probably my favorite of the performances she's given in Petzl's films. Um, and she's kind of like uh he kind of regards her as like too much of a free spirit she's very like flighty and unreliable and um is like working at an ice cream stand he's just kind of like looks down on her while he has this great noble pursuit of crafting a second novel and it's really becomes about his own narcissism and sense of self-importance and how much that's blinding him not only to others and what they could 
and the kind of people that they could be, but then what he could be for them and like enriching his own life. Um, and all of this is taking place against the backdrop of a looming forest fire that's kind of off of the distance, kind of increasingly encroaching on things. And it, that kind of functions as like a really good metaphor for climate change and all kinds of looming disasters right now. But um, stacked against the character work, it, it just all forms a really good um, sense of looming dread and strange sources of tension. And all the characters still within this kind of like what could seem as I'm describing it as too kind of structured. Um, all the characters still feel real and impulsive and intuitively drawn and like they're really just reacting to the moment. Um, so yeah, it's a film that's really stuck with me much more than I expected it to when I first saw it. Um, yeah. Uh, I feel like I should say something cause I've seen the movie, but yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's good. It's also, it's not my favorite of the recent Pet Solds. Uh, I'm a bigger fan of Barbara than I think you are. Yeah. But I think we both liked Undine. Yeah, I mean, I liked everything else of his I've seen. Barbara's really the outlier. Um, Transit's probably still my favorite. Um, But yeah, uh, so yeah, that's an original screenplay. I chose an adapted screenplay. um, Adapted from Brock Yates' book, Enzo Ferrari, The Man, The Cars, The Races, The Machine. Mm. Uh, Troy Kennedy Martin's screenplay for Ferrari. Uh, I haven't read my... My guess is from the title of the book that it's more uh, biograph, more all-encompassing. Yeah, I'm yeah. guessing um, the movie Ferrari very much focuses on a very specific um, time in Enzo Ferrari's life, uh, and so what I appreciate about what the screenplay does is taking the. Um, I feel like we've seen too many biopics where usually about like successful men whose dedication to their craft uh, hurts their home life. Right. They're, they're, sure. There's too much of that. Um, this movie makes the two things inextricable from one another yeah. by making the, the two storylines uh, about the same thing, which is... The movie is centered at a point when the legacy of the name Ferrari is in jeopardy, both in his love and family life and in his business and and, and company and professional life. Uh, and so, yeah, for taking things that I'm, I would not be surprised to learn that the timelines were fudged for the movie. To, sure. Almost uh, certainly. Yeah, that, that sort of thing doesn't bother me so uh by by taking those those two threads of his life and making it about uh the same thing in different forms uh that's what i loved about the screenplay all right um it's worth noting that troy kennedy martin uh died over 10 years ago that's how long this film has been in development yeah they started developing it shortly it would have been shortly after that biography was published that was published in 1991 i know they've been developing since the 90s um but yeah he he wrote the original italian job and this was of course the last produced screenplay um and i understand that michael mann did some rewrites on it obviously you would have to but um apparently yeah it stuck pretty much to what they developed along the way it would definitely fit in I feel like more with Michael Mann's films in the 90s. Like totally, like yeah. Manhunter and he and the insider, like it's very much all about like these men that are trying to do this thing, but they're also trying to deal with like 
their personal life and their marriage and just the way these things are incompatible. Um, and the filmmaking, too, is a lot more classical yeah, than absolutely. Um, his more recent efforts, which have been divisive. Yeah. I had seen Black, Black Hat. So I like it. I love Black Hat. That yeah, was on yeah. my top ten that year. I know a lot of people really like it. I, I need to see it. So I, yeah, outside of like some TV work, I don't think I've seen anything since Public Enemies, which is yeah. the last one he... Black Hat's the only one in between those two, right? I think so. I believe so, yeah. There's the... the yeah, he did the the luck pilot right uh mm-hmm. which is which was really great and then i didn't watch uh the ansel Elgort. what was that uh tokyo vice tokyo vice i didn't mm-hmm. watch that that's right people uh, have been telling me that it's really good and that i need to see it i heard that the pilot's really good and then it kind of drops off after that <laughs> got it um okay so i'm not gonna get any of these names right perfect so sorry in advance uh, my choice is an adapted screenplay it is Ariella Bearer, Bearer, pardon me, Jordan Scholl, and Daniel Goldhaber's How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Hmm. Um, man, that's a good script. Like, the structure of it is perfect. Uh, they do such a good job of making it a true group effort. Like, yeah, there are a couple of characters that could be seen as being the leads, but not really. Like, you really understand, like how everybody has a part to play everybody has their own reasons for doing this and everybody has a different personality like some people you're very sympathetic to other people are like this guy's kind of a jackass um but every but the idea that everything comes together like it really i mean honestly like it really lives up to the title like sure you, you look at it and it's like do you want to know this is basically <laughs> how you do it um, and it also functions. which is funny because the book very famously doesn't do that right, right. oh really yeah really? The, I mean that he even says in the movie when the kid from Blackish I can't remember his name mm-hmm. uh, he's in the bookstore and he picks up I don't think you ever see the cover but he picks okay. up how to blow a pipeline and the books the other guy says you know it doesn't actually tell you how to build mm-hmm. a bomb but yeah I, I mean this is adapted you know how in that in the 90s there used to be like CD soundtracks that would be like music oh, inspired. inspired by yeah. Spider-Man 3 or Spider-Man whatever yeah. um, that's that's what this is kind of like there will be blood being based on oil like right. a, the like, story is like essentially wholly original just like inspired Fast Food Nation right. uh, is yeah. similar to that as well um, but uh, but yeah and so and it also functions I think it's kind of a mystery it sort of unfolds that way where there's stuff going on that you're not privy to yeah that unfolds naturally uh so that you have a you finally wind up with the full picture um and there's just something about like it's completely naturalistic in its dialogue and its characters but you get a sense of who everybody is um and there's some style to the structure of it and man i just thought it was like one of the best scripts of the year yeah, and I was going to say, is like especially on the ensemble point, um, I, I think that lack of understanding who the main characters are is so essential to making... There ends up being like a twist of sorts. Yeah. Just like the revelations that occur, yeah. not knowing who we're supposed to be paying attention to is yeah. a really smart decision there. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, you you likened it a mystery, to a mystery, but the clear analog here is a heist movie. Yeah, yeah. totally. Exactly Absolutely. The, that sort of like Ocean's Eleven thing of yeah. like... We're seeing them work, but also we're learning how the, what the plan is as it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, shit, they made an exact, exact replica of the pipe. 
Yeah. Man. <laughs> and it goes for it's like six miles. Um, and right. it's also very suspenseful. Oh, yeah. On top of everything else. It really is. It, listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. I believe it's on Hulu and it's worth a watch. Um, okay, so next up, we're going to go with Supporting Actress. Supporting Actress. All right, this was a tougher one for me to nail down. Um, I'll throw a nod to Jodie Foster and I, which would probably be my choice if I actually thought that was a sporting performance. I know it's been categorized as that, but I really think it's a co-lead, if not the lead of the film. Oh, interesting. Um, so instead, give a shout to um, a performance that I think is not getting enough credit, um, and that's Vanessa Kirby in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part mm-hmm. 1. Um, she is good in that. Not only is she has she become like so captivating as this um kind of like amoral jack of all trades arms dealer um but the performance she gives in the train sequence where she has to be playing Haley atwell playing her is the kind of acting that's so textured and nuanced but also can't be showy because so Haley atwell's on the train in a mask to, pl- uh, to play as vanessa kirby's character um but Haley Atwell's like new to the spy game, so she's not as confident as like when Ethan Hunt wears a mask. So she's giving away a certain amount of herself, but not so much that ends up foiling the whole plan. And it's also not like Haley Atwell has a lot of like ticks that Vanessa Kirby can be playing yeah. along the way to give those kind of like indications of like and like be showy about it. But she has to give enough that the audience feels the tension that Haley Atwell is experiencing of like the whole plan could fall apart at any time. And it's so I mean, I've seen it now twice, and especially the second time I watched it, I was like, she is really, like, detailing this character in ways that go far and beyond anything I think we've seen before in these, like, masking scenes in the Mission Impossible series, and really kind of elevates that scene to a whole different level. Um, so, yeah, I, I've i been quite taken with Vanessa Kirby as an actress on the whole. Um, when the new Fantastic Four cast got announced, someone was like, they just got a bunch of TV actors there. But I think Vanessa Kirby's kind of proved her mettle in the, the feature realm and her work here is good evidence of why it's it's yeah. the kind of performance that no one ever talks about but yeah. like so much of this movie hinges on that performance being exactly what it is it needs to be convincing enough for the characters but it needs to show us that like show us what we know yeah which is that like she is very nervous and does not have a lot of confidence in herself um, and because it's a performance that, for lack of a better term, like, is, is imperative to the plot, I feel like people don't think of it from a character standpoint. Totally. But it absolutely is. And yeah, that's a great choice. Thanks. I'm a big Vanessa Kirby fan. Um, I think it's insane to call her a TV actress that's, she hasn't been on The Crown in six years. I just had to look. Is it that long? Wow. Oh, no, wow. Well, this, it says she appears in an episode in season five but I, I don't know if there's they did some sort flashback, of flashback, flashback yeah. Back, but say. yeah it, she was only in the first two seasons of the of the crown as, as princess margaret and then helen bottom carter played her in three and four and then i didn't watch five and six i don't know who played princess margaret in, in five yeah. and six but uh, or six hasn't happened yet right yeah um anyway that's not important <laughs> what's important is that i really like vanessa kirby um and I will, I, and I obviously haven't seen Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 or Napoleon, which she was also... Oh, in. she's so good in Napoleon. Um, but I would direct people to uh, an underseen movie from 2021 called Italian Studies. Okay. She plays a, 
woman who gets amnesia and walks around New York for 80 minutes. Mm, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, oh shit, I'm up. <laughs> Don't okay. put that phone away. So mine, I could be, this could be, I could be accused of cheating because this is such a substantial role yeah. that it, um, many people probably might think of it as a co-lead, but uh, fuck it, I'm going to play by my, by my own rules. Uh, and I'm going with the great Juliette Binoche in The Taste of Things. Hmm. Um, the Taste of Things is a, a romance, um, and it's a movie about food. Uh, but I, I think what's great about Juliette Binoche's performance is how how well she understands how well the character understands herself and her place in the world and what she wants and that like the the fact that the romance between Juliette Binoche and Benoit Mejumel starts off as an em- that she's his employee um, is not really lost on the like that that's a that's a crucial part of how she plays the character um, not that it's I'm not talking about like it's a me too like he's exploiting his power type of thing just that she has an understanding of her station in life and it's what she wants um, and uh, there is resistance on her part to pursuing the the romance um, uh, I think because she's so self-possessed and sure of herself and her yeah and, and her and her place um that um that that journey to her like sort of acquiescing to becoming his wife but also like still insisting that she's like the cook first in a way yeah um that's at that point it becomes literal she actually says it but i feel like that uh, th- that character's desire to remain in in the kitchen um, is present in her performance up until that point as well. Yeah, and it's like such a physical performance because all the actors did their own cooking on the film. There's no like doubles for any of the work. Yeah. And so we have to get just in that whole like long, I don't know how long it goes on, like 30, 40 minutes preparation, meal preparation scene in the beginning. We have to get all of the passion she has for it and the patience it takes to execute a meal at that level, at that time in history um, with the tools they had um, and how much, you know, it's like so trite to be like, there's so much love in the cooking, but like how much genuine passion and like expression goes into it. Yeah. I I want all those, uh, all that copper cookware. It looks. I know, right? (laughs) Um, Man, I wish I, I so enjoy cooking now. And I, that's one of those things that like. I can't believe I waited so late into life to like enjoy cooking. Like I was so impatient. Well, that's the thing. I think it does require a degree of patience. And that's yeah. It's it's weird that it feels weird that one acquires patience as you get older. Because yeah, it should be like I'm running out of time. You're running out of time, right? <laughs> that's I feel like I didn't like Jerry Seinfeld have a thing about like why do old people drive slow they should be like driving fast because yeah, yeah. I think that I, I can't remember exactly the, the bit of the comic but yeah um, it is I'm getting way off topic here but that is a, a strange thing that you learn patience as you get as you get older um, also if you're me you have therapy and medication that have well you. sure <laughs> uh, alright Tyler you're up um okay so 
I was split between two. So I'll mention one, which is a cheat, and then I'll talk about the okay. other one. Uh, I'm going to mention Mia Goth in Infinity Pool. Man, oh man. Yeah, I'll just chime in and say I greatly dislike Infinity Pool, but she is so good in it. Yeah, and I, yeah, I genuinely like the movie, but like, yeah. But man, oh man, that is a yeah. That performance, that character is tough sledding. Yeah. But I will be talking about Patty Lupone in Bo is sure. Afraid. Man, the, <laughs> like the one character that's worse. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to get too deep into. But I was afraid because I'm certainly going to be talking about it in a couple weeks. But what I will say is that the premise of it is that it's the world through the eyes of someone who deals with anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, all that stuff. And so none of the none of the actors are playing real characters. No, they're playing characters as seen by someone who has all these filters on. So of course, when you're playing this character's mother uh there's going to be a lot of layers to that and patty lupone manages to be man oh man just everything that that she needs to be in this context she is domineering she is a little bit charming um she is constantly shaming and she knows just how to play all of these notes so that she's not just one thing um, because obviously, even though he might see her predominantly in one way, he understands that there's a lot of different elements to her, but every single element, even the positive ones, are still seen through his eyes. So she has to do, she has to do that. She can't, and I can't imagine how difficult that must be for an actor to not actually play a character as is but you have to play a character completely as they are seen and perceived instead of what they might actually be and so when she so every scene she's in she just totally takes over as she should and she's terrifying and you also hate her but you also deeply want her approval and uh she manages to capture all of that um and i I don't think I've ever seen her do anything like this before. And I thought it was just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much nah. to, yeah. to add. I mean, yeah. I'm going to take a... Because I like... I don't know. I Scott's always saying, like, in episodes like this, if I bring up a movie that he doesn't like, he doesn't want to dwell on that. <laughs> sure. So I, and I love... I think Bo is Afraid is Ari Aster's best movie. Whatever you want to make of that. But um, I think the, th the third act of the movie is the weakest, but oh. that doesn't mean she's not great in it. Oh, man. I'm pretty high on the movie. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do think it starts at the strongest point. I mean, I was could not stop laughing at the first 30 minutes. Yeah. And seeing that with the crowd was so much fun that it's oh, hard okay. for the movie to ever kind of yeah. crescendo past that. But um, I, I think it's a pretty strong piece of work. I mean, this is my problem with Ari Aster is that the best stuff happens at the beginning of his movies you know or, or at least the most impactful stuff happens right at the beginning and it never like that's my problem like midsummer which is mostly good like kicks off with something so yeah, horrific right yeah that i'd never feel like yeah more horrific stuff happens as the movie goes on but it's not it's not escalating it's not dialing up i mean i think to both credit it 
escalates and it yeah. keeps reinventing itself in strange ways. It's yeah. just like it's seeing that movie opening weekend with a crowd that like none of us really knew what the movie was going to be about. Yeah. And the way that first 30 minutes takes off is like, yeah. is just so enjoyable. And the movie never gets more enjoyable is the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you can't say a movie that ends with a giant penis monster isn't in some way <laughs> escalating. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that <laughs> was going to be my 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 uh, pick for a supporting act. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, um, um, yeah. Uh, I... Uh, I watched it on an airplane, so maybe that affected it. Yeah, I watched it by myself yeah. in here <laughs> late at night. And, like, in that first 30 minutes, I was like, I thought, this is amazing, but boy, I'm pretty exhausted already. Oh, it's three hours. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so next I think we'll do... Um, and I think next we'll do director. All right. All right. Um... My pick here is uh, another Christian, Christian Munju for RMN. Um, and just on a purely skill level, he's a, such an accomplished filmmaker in terms of how much he's able to get into each frame. You know, most of his scenes, if not all of his scenes, take place in a single shot. Um, and that he, the skill with which he blocks actors, blocking actors is one of those things that, like, you kind of feel like has fallen off in terms of. Uh, routine talent that you see in most movies but he's really one of the great exemplars of it of all time and certainly of modern era um but there's also a way in which that can um become too literal and what's exciting about rmn in comparison to his prior films all of which i've loved but rmn has a slight air of surreality that i really didn't expect um from him at all and from the way the movie is set up which is kind of this like uh it's been a long time since I've seen, or a while since I've seen it anyway. Um, but it's kind of like a class uh, agitation film about like people in town um, being frustrated with their wages and uh, taking out on immigration and all this kind of like geopolitical, kind of contemporary sociopolitical stuff. Um, but then it just becomes more and more inward looking as the film goes on without really changing its aesthetic structure to such an extent that I literally after exiting the movie googled RMN ending explained and mysteriously found a result for it that uh, <laughs> did assure me that uh, the f- ending was as surreal as I read it and I didn't just miss something entirely um, but yeah it was a really exciting evolution for Manju who's a filmmaker who as exciting and amazing as his films are it does seem like he could have gotten himself into a rut by this point but no he's still got more avenues to go down so yeah that's my pick okay. yeah it's probably been even longer since I've seen it because <clears throat> um, I saw it at Toronto in yeah. 22 uh, but yeah it's it is fantastically well directed and it is um, I guess like looking back at his films at something like Graduation it maybe shouldn't have been surprising that he could make what is essentially a thriller by the end. Oh, but I, all his movies I, are kind of thrillers. Yeah, to me. I, but I don't think we, I thought of him because, I guess because there's not as many, like, guns <laughs> <laughs> as there are at the end of R- RMN. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, uh, fascinating movie. And he, um, to go back to what you're saying about the, the setting um, or, or the the class and, and immigration thing, it, the movie is intentionally set in transylvania in romania right a a part of romania that is uh uh full of immigrants and people who there's a he intentionally picked a place where there's a lot of different languages spoken yeah you can see uh 
I know when I saw it, I'm not sure if you, when you saw it, it had the same conceit that different language subtitles are in different colors. That's right. I forgot about so that. Because there's like Romanian is spoken, but also there's English and there's French and there's like Hungarian and uh, and then you've got the characters who come from Africa and there's yeah. like everything has its own color. So much that I couldn't even, there are so many languages spoken. Oh yeah, it'd be impossible. But, it, but it when I wrote like... my review in, of, of it, from TIFF, I did list every language that was spoken <laughs> in the movie just to show there's got to be like seven or eight different languages. There. Yeah, yeah, I think then like the first language you hear and the subtitles you see are like what they've color coded as purple i remember it being not like white or yellow and i was like yeah. we got to look at this the whole goddamn movie <laughs> and i was like oh okay i see what they're doing yeah yeah uh okay director um i am going with a personal favorite director who i think has been criminally overlooked this award and whose film has been criminally overlooked this award season uh, i'm going with sofia coppola for yeah. priscilla uh the the comparison that I have thought of, do you, does anyone remember in the movie Sideways, <laughs> Paul Giamatti has a little monologue about why he loves Pinot Noir. Yeah. And it's, a lot of it is because the great, he's clearly talking about himself in the movie, right. but he's talking about the grapes being very like sensitive and temperamental and they have to yeah. be handled just right. You can't go too hot or too cold, you know? And I feel like Priscilla is like a really well-made Pinot Noir that in a different way, there is just as much control exerted over this movie as Jonathan Glazer exerted over the zone of interest, but whereas Jonathan Glazer is like holding on tight to keep the movie on the same path, there's a very, very light touch with Sofia yeah. Coppola. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of all her movies, but I was really um, especially moved by by this one um and i think it really this is a movie that um i was loving the whole time but sometimes there are movies where like the ending is like it's not the ending changes things it's that you realize how perfect the movie was that the the ending of priscilla and i think this might be why it's not more of an awards movie there's no big like Oscar clip like speech that Priscilla right. gets to make to like stand up for herself or whatever. It's it's very it's very subdued, but it's like the least subdued she's been the whole movie, and so it feels huge. And we talked about it a little bit in the needle drops episode that that there's a the Dolly Parton needle drop at, at the end there. Um, uh, it's it's a really just a masterfully uh, crafted. Um, meticulous and gentle type of movie uh and yeah maybe too subtle for awards bodies i guess well and that within that control it can still be like kind of funny i i, I really think of like elvis's posse oh, it's yeah. just like the goofiest bunch of dorks so good yeah i actually i one of my other rules um for this episode is not to repeat movies sure um but uh, Jacob Elordi for supporting actor was something I considered him too. To it yet. I, I considered it. Yeah. But I had already settled on Sofia Coppola, so I didn't go with him. Yeah, you mentioned that the film is overlooked. Uh, that includes by me. I actually do have access to it, um, but I keep forgetting about it, even though I love Sofia Coppola and like her movies are often like in my top five of that year. Um, and I and I I know that I'll love Priscilla like. You know, anytime she makes movies about 
either about or as like or movies that are like adjacent to show business i'm always fascinated to know what she has to say yeah and so yeah i, I definitely have to prioritize that one um okay so my choice uh i don't want to talk too much about it because once again i'll be talking about it in my top 10 uh but i feel like i would be remiss if i did not talk about uh what i would consider uh the prize of uh most improved <laughs> and that is emerald fennel oh, or fennel yeah. however you say it um i believe i don't think any of us really liked promising young nah. woman right nope. yeah and J- uh, david i believe one of our big notes is we thought it wasn't risky enough uh i guess word got back <laughs> because saltburn is just like like now would have been a time for her to sort of like play it safe a little bit and she does exactly the opposite and she totally commits to the movie she's making and makes it funny and disturbing and everything that it needs to be everything that i think promising young woman wasn't uh is what i think uh saltburn is um and i was just so i was reluctant to watch it because I didn't like her first film, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, It's just a film that, like, it just kept throwing me for a loop in every, in, like, only good ways. I really loved it, and I think she did. Uh, Now I can't wait to see what her next film is. Yeah, when we talked about it on the fall preview, I was like, I don't know, I think I'm kind of looking forward to it, because sometimes you get those second features where like the first features like them kind of like testing the waters yeah. and it meets enough success that they really let loose yeah and sometimes i and for that reason i often like the second features much more than the first mm. and i was very thrilled to see that was the case yeah here. yeah you were right i was i was wrong because the fall movie preview was like this is there's no way least anticipated movie <laughs> the fall because i i uh, was not looking forward to it but uh yeah i'm also curious to see what she's done what she does next because um the movie is I mean, it's all anecdotal because these streaming services don't tell you what yeah. the numbers yeah. are, but it seems to be a big success, um, even though it's not getting the awards attention. Yeah. Um, and I don't yeah. think it made that big a mark at the box office. But uh, And there's definitely not a guarantee that everybody that watched it has a favorable opinion of it. Well, uh, that's for sure, yeah. In, ta- guess- in talking to people here, like staff members, uh, they all watched it. Uh, I don't think any of them like it. <laughs> but still, they... They all watched it. They, yeah, they clicked um, it. But yeah, I mean, there is a, a, a certain measure of a movie success in like how memed it is, and yeah, I feel like totally. this is a, 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 a much memed movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, good for her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, next I think we'll do our uh, our wild card. All right. All right, Scott. What do you got? I went with the production design for Inside. Um, mm. Ah, uh, yes. Damn right. <laughs> I know as a movie, uh, Tyler said, because the two of us were the only people who put Willem Dafoe on our best actor ballot for um, the BPs. And I, I think I almost put inside for production design. Yeah, it was uh, pretty sure I had number one on my list there, but it really stood out when I was kind of cruising through thinking of a wild card. Um, so inside is a movie where Willem Dafoe breaks into a rich guy's penthouse apartment to steal some art and gets trapped inside. And you know, there's some voices on phones and stuff like that. I think maybe we glimpse some people in security footage, but for the most part, it's like the Willem Dafoe show. Yeah. And 
as I told Julie when we left the movie, it was like, this is my ideal kind of movie, which is just you pour Willem Dafoe into basically an empty box and let him loose. Yeah. Um, but the production design really like works in tandem with his performance and it becomes this like constantly changing and ever morphing yeah. way of expressing the character as much as anything Dafoe is doing um, as he like finds the limits of what the apartment can offer him and demolishes it, but not in like a strictly realist way where like he's constantly like, I mean, he does like find new food sources and like finds a way to sustain himself yeah. in like the way of like Ridley Scott's The Martian or something like that. But it also like sometimes he, the way he constructs things feels more like an artistic expression than a strictly survival one. I think especially of like the structure he builds to reach. Yeah. Is that like the fire extinguisher or the, um, the sprinkler system? I can't remember what he's trying to get to. Or well, it's, it's trying it's the to ceiling. get to like uh the glass ceiling, like right? a skylight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that whole structure, like that damn glass ceiling, <laughs> we're all just trying to smash it, even Willem Dafoe. Um, but yeah, that whole structure is just like such a weird mishmash of furniture yeah. and other objects throughout the film. But becomes like, uh, the, yeah, this express this expresses side of the character that we don't have access to that you can't really put into words, but which only makes sense as this kind of like built object. And the more he like finds different rooms in the house, and those come yeah. to like. Yeah, expand the character as well. Yeah, it's just such a fascinating movie that um, I really wish more people had seen because I found it so interesting. Yeah, it really... um, I feel like our listeners would like it a lot. Um, But I could see some people not really responding to it because, you know, the character doesn't, like, spell out his motivation or anything like that. It's just totally in the moment. And also, it's like... I don't think his motivation really matters anymore. No, we're uh, well past that stage yeah, pretty immediately. Exactly. <laughs> it's like there is really only now. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I I think it's a great looking movie. I think his performance is wonderful, and yeah, I feel like if 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 this year were if people just looked at it from a different angle, like he would definitely be like a best actor nominee yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to take a moment to do one of my favorite things and talk about my arcane rules um, <laughs> for eligibility for these, which are my public lists. So I have a private list. And my private list is just movies that premiered in 2023. Yeah. For the public list, a movie has to have both premiered in 2023, and I used to say also been released in the U.S. in 2023. I've, over the years soften that to be has to have premiered in 2023 and be released in the u.s um before we do our top 10 you're such a fucking sellout (laughs) (laughs) so that's why i'm lucky because that i'm just barely able to put this uh beautiful movie uh on these lists uh because it's out like this weekend um i'm picking i should have looked up how to pronounce the director's name boss devos uh his new movie is called new movie is called here Oh right, and I am going to uh, highlight. There's a lot of things to highlight about the movie, but I highlight the editing, because um, the movie just glides, much like the characters are. Uh, the movie, um, sort of, to different different ends, some at different ends, but uh, similar to RMN, um, the movie is set in Brussels at a place that I read. A, I read a, a, an interview with Devos where he talked about why he said it why he told the story they told where he told that uh, Brussels is also very a, a very much an immigrant heavy place and the movie is about two immigrants a Romanian 
um, again, like in RMN, a Romanian and a Chinese, a Romanian man and a Chinese woman, and the Romanian man works construction, but he's just like finished one job and he has like some time off and he's going, he's about to go back to Romania. Um, and then this woman that he meets is soon to return to China, um, I think for good, if I remember correctly. Uh, but the movie sort of, it takes place in that kind of nowhere space between like, he's finished the job, but his plane isn't for a couple days. So he's got basically just like a couple days to like hang out in Brussels and what he decides to do because he wants to unplug his fridge while he goes away to not use the energy. He decides to uh, make a make some soup and walk around the city like delivering soup to his friends before he goes off. Uh, and in doing so, he has a meet cute with this uh, Chinese woman and uh, they sort of develop a... Uh, the early stages of, I guess, a romance, but also they're both on, you know, borrowed time in the city, so... Uh, but it has that... The movie has that feeling of kind of, like... Those times when you're, like... So I, I tend to be a planner, and Natalie is too, when we're on vacation. There's a lot of, like, we want to see this museum, we want to go to see a show, and stuff like that. But sometimes when you're on vacation you do just have a day or you even just have an afternoon to just like hang out and there are no demands on your time um and uh there are no real worries and and the movie very much and i think a lot of it is in the editing uh creates that feel of uh this is like just extra time that that these characters have to just hang out um and to even though they both live in Brussels, it has a sort of uh, what Tom Anderson would call a high tourist eye <laughs> uh, uh, for for Brussels. Um, just uh, you know, looking at everything, you know, looking at the bus lanes or whatever the 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 you know local restaurants and stuff um, through this inquisitive, curious eye. But the editing which even though by its nature editing is fourth dimensional is moving you toward a thing the editing reinforces this feel of this is almost uh somnambulant soporific oh nice yeah uh absolutely beautiful movie and uh hey people if you especially if you're in new york or la you're lucky you get to you can go see it like right now <laughs> all right so Oh, wait, I forgot to say that that, uh, coincidentally, even though I should have named the editor, I didn't. Did you name the production designer of Inside? Yeah, I'm an asshole. Um, The woman, the Chinese woman in the movie is a non-professional actor. She is actually a film editor who has worked for Wang Bing, among Hmm. others, but she is not the editor of the movie. Just thought that was interesting. That is odd. Uh, Thing. Uh, Okay. All right, so... Okay, so I'm gonna... This is gonna be a pretty massive cheat. Um, I'm not proud of myself for this, but I don't know any other time I'll be able to talk about it. So, rather than talk about one individual contributing to a much larger tapestry, I'm going to talk about the tapestry contributing to one individual scene. Okay. All right? Okay. I'm 
I'm letting myself off the hook because uh, I love this scene so much, and it's in a it's in a big uh, big blockbuster, and that is from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, and it is the hallway scene, uh, the hallway fight. Now we've seen a lot of hallway fights in superhero movies and action movies in general, um, but those have always been uh, in video game terms side scrollers. Whereas this one is a lot more three-dimensional. And so basically, uh, you know, our, our heroes have to get from one place to another. And in between is probably a hallway that's like 150 feet. And it's full of enemies. So they have to go in and uh, fight all these enemies. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and James Gunn puts all uh, underneath or on top of uh, the song No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Okay, fine. It's the it's the structure of it that really works for me combined with combined with the cinematography, the editing, the choreography and the acting. Um all these working together to show like one of my, you know, a long time ago David, we did an episode on like the things that we just like individual things we really like to see. And one of the things I really love, I mean, I talked about it with how to blow up a pipeline, is like when you see a team and you see what every person brings to it uh, and that everybody is different. And so with this, uh, everyone's fighting at the same time, but the camera will go through and focus on one member of the team at a time. uh, And you get to see like their different fighting style um, and so the the editing and the cinematography it changes depending on who you are following in that moment and and so you're seeing all these individual elements uh, coming together to accomplish uh, a larger goal and that's very much a thing that I like but I also think it's just done really well it's something that I feel like we don't give James Gunn uh, enough credit. Uh, we think of him as like, yeah, he's like a fun writer and all that, but I think over the years he's definitely come to uh, really evolve and be really good at directing um, action um, and doing it in a way that feels appropriate for the characters uh, and appropriate for uh, what uh, for the tone of the film at that moment and so uh, I really like that scene I've gone back and watched it a couple of times um, because it's just you know it's I mean we see great action movie sorry great action sequences all the time but this one is so rooted in individual characters and the team as a whole that I just uh, I just really liked it and yes so I know that's a cheat I'm talking about an individual scene, uh, but that's what I chose to go with. It's all right. I'll have a cheat coming up. Oh, um, good. <laughs> I have not seen Guardians 3. Um, I kind of feel like I want to. I think it's pretty good. Like it. I, I mean, yeah, the other... I've seen the other two. I like them just fine. Yeah. Um, I, it does feel like um, James Gunn maybe has been able to maintain more of himself in the Marvel machine than some of the other I think directors. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or maybe he's just taken over from Joss Whedon and sort of setting the tone. Maybe, of, yeah. Um, sure. Um, 
or John Favreau before him. Um, but uh, yeah, I was going to say something else about that, but no, I don't remember. Anyway, all right, I should see it. Yeah, I, I think you would like it. There's definitely some gross James Gunn stuff in there. Yeah, so yeah, that's always is fun. Stallone in it. He is. Yes. Yeah. That's um, what was one of the few like the Guardians two like sort of like tag at the end or whatever like the post credit scene. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Um, or maybe that was a mid credit scene. I can't remember. Uh, that was one of the few that actually I was like, I would like to see more of that <laughs> yeah. character. Yeah. Oh no, he he definitely plays a role in in the film, and uh, and uh, Nathan Fillion shows up. Huh. Uh, unsurprisingly, but also yeah. delightfully. Yeah, he's really good. Um, okay, so next up, we will, do, category. we will do lead actress. Lead Here, here's my cheat category. Okay, great. Um, all right, so instead of going with a single actress for a single film, I went with single actress for three different films okay. um, to spotlight a French actress who Julie mentioned on our top ten episode, uh, Laura Colomy. Um, who some listeners might know she's on a French TV show called it, it, French is called like 10% but in the US it's on Netflix as Call My Agent which is like it calling it entourage for the French is too try to turn but it's basically like behind the scenes of a uh, actor's agency and so every episode a different famous actor guest stars and it's about like something about their career not working the one I always point to which is fun for people who follow Isabel Huber's career is her episode is about her trying to make two movies at once basically and she overbooked herself which if you follow Isabel Hooper's career is spot on anyway so Laura Callamy is probably familiar to some listeners for that but she's really staked out uh, a great uh, claim as um, a lead actress in three different films this year Um, I think the one that got the most notice was Full Time in which she plays a single mother um, trying to navigate a French rail strike and commute to Paris for her job as a um, like she's essentially like the head cleaning the head of the cleaning staff at a hotel at a high-end hotel um while also interviewing for a much better job and it's as like tense as a born movie or something like that of like just the relentlessness of her life and all things she has to juggle and she's so good at expressing that um kind of constant terror that comes when you're living not quite at the margins but kind of hand to mouth and kind of paycheck to paycheck of like if any single element of her life starts to fall apart her whole life will tumble and several elements of her life start to fall apart um and then in a very different register she was in a movie called the origin of evil which is kind of like uh parasite but even more chaotic um it's about a woman who goes to visit um her father um she's kind of like down and out and she her father has long been estranged from her life because he had her with a woman he was having an affair with and so he never really had anything to do with her but he's very wealthy and so she suspects she can get something from him and more and more revelations start to unfurl about the nature of her and the nature of their relationship and she has to play a lot of dualities and even trialities i guess you would say um throughout the film and it's just such a great showcase for someone who's as multi-talented as her and then finally in a pure fun blast she's in a kind of like friendship comedy called two tickets to greece where it's her and um this friend that she grew up with and they're kind of like reconnecting and going to greece together and her friend is this like way too buttoned up person i think a lot of the film's flaws stem from her that character being a little too limited but laura calamy gets to play her like free willing free-spirited best friend who like 
is just like willing to do whatever anytime for a good time and she's so 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 much fun in there um so yeah it, she's an actress who i kind of had my on she's been playing supporting roles in a lot of films over the past few years but this was like really a big breakout year for her as a lead actress and uh, especially the full time in origin of evil but even two tickets to greece is, are all really worth seeing especially for her all right uh yeah i was looking up to see if um I'd seen her in anything, and I have seen... She was in a movie that actually is going to come up on a Patreon that you and I have already recorded. Everybody, patreon.com slash battleship attention. She was in Only the Animals. Oh, yeah. Um, which, uh, um, yeah, she is the one who finds the uh, dead dog in that guy's barn, if yeah. you remember that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, good for her. Yeah. I should watch these movies. Yeah. And call my agent. Okay. <laughs> um lead actress okay um i am going with uh talia Ryder from the sweet east um talia Ryder was great in um hold on i'm gonna get it right uh never rarely sometimes always there you go yeah um once i remember which one it starts with i can remember because it's yeah, a yeah. progression yeah starts with never never rarely sometimes always um but uh this is a fascinating performance in the sweeties because she's it's very different the, yeah she's clearly the the lead the entire movie centers on her except except she's almost completely but not completely a passive character that things happen to um but uh what makes the uh performance and i guess the screenplay so juicy are those moments when she's not that you know she she uh the the story is she's a, a high school student on a field trip to the capital. Um, the, I mean, the capital being Washington, D.C., the capital of these United States of America. <laughs> um, and uh, due to uh, uh, an incident that I won't <laughs> spoil for people, she gets separated from her class, ends up falling in first with a gang of, like, um, uh, anarchic, like, uh, environmental activists yeah um uh who are mostly a bunch of dumb fuck-ups um <laughs> and then sh from there she gets involved with um a sort of academic white supremacist yeah and then she gets involved in uh a movie shoot and then the it, she keeps like jump bouncing from thing to thing and and uh, uh she keeps she sort of goes with the flow adapts to what is needed but then um there are little things uh that i that i love and again the things that i'm saying are in the screenplay but Tellywriter plays them very very well like uh with the academic white supremacist guy like uh she mostly goes along but she has a way of getting what she wants from him you know um uh you know leaving the door open while she takes a bath and announcing that she's going to right. do so for one um and then there's other things like later, um, kind of like how, kind of like how Tony Soprano would uh, reappropriate things that Melfi said to him in therapy. Yeah. There's things that that other characters have said to her earlier, and you think she's just this like passive thing, but she's clearly sponging it up because she uh, repeats something that Simon Rex t said to her to Jacob Elordi later in the movie, but makes it her own. Uh, it's a it's a great role. Um, it's a great screenplay. Um, although, yeah, every time I, I gotta stay off of Twitter because <laughs> the 
screenwriters oh yeah made a fool of himself this week well uh, he's had a long history of doing that yeah <laughs> I, see, I mean i love nick pinkerton but he's yeah. you know right you how did he make a fool of himself he like called out um a theater in cincinnati i think yeah that, somewhere, but where Ohio. they tried to book the sweet east and then ended up booking it somewhere else and he called them out for not returning his emails and they were like uh we have the receipts and like yeah you have you like you know the ball was in your court as of like last november you were supposed to get back to us but they weren't mean about it they were like looks like you're having a great run at this other yeah thing. like they yeah. were super nice yeah. and he just kept being a dick about it which i mean like, you can see how that would produce the screenplay for the sweeties though <laughs> yeah. i mean it's like yeah. this is like the thing of people i mean you can take this as far as you want of like everyone any kind of like vague rudeness being under the guise of being problematic but it's like sometimes you're not going to get these weird movies without some people being assholes sometimes yeah you know? I'm, I'm not uh, I don't care that yeah. Nick Pickerton is a baby about this movie theater <laughs> uh, the movie's still great and Tally Ryder is great in it it feels like um, I, I don't know I've said versions of this before that like a, one great performance is a great performance two great performances is uh, a, a great actor Sure. Um, and that's how I feel about Telly Ryder now, having seen Never Really, Sometimes Always, and this. Well, and the way she, like, because I, I don't really think she's passive. I think she's accepting of, like, this weird journey that she ends up going on. But I, I think the way in which the character has to reappropriate things that she's heard before, but in a way that kind of weaponizes those things of, like, you can see even as she's, like, hearing other people talk and then choosing what to say in these new situations, her kind of like really just being a parasite to all these people and just like taking what she can from them and moving on and like yeah. not caring that it results i mean hilariously in several deaths along the way <laughs> but like it, it doesn't affect her and she, like I, yeah. that's really the satirical underbite of the film to me is that it's about the way people can move between various modes in a society that has no real values and no real underpinning and that you can constantly reinvent yourself um yeah um looking up her filmography and it uh, it says she was in Spielberg's West Side Story. I don't remember her. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember noticing that, but then I pulled up the cast list and she was so far down that I'm like, well, no wonder I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, my choice for lead actress, um, once again, I might get this name wrong, is Vivian Opara in Rye Lane. Did either of you see yeah, Rye Lane? I, I, saw I did. I was yeah. a little mixed on it, but no, I, I, I liked it a lot yeah. more than I thought I was going to. Um, and I thought she was really great. I like both of them, but I think she was really great because, and this is a script issue as well, but it has to, obviously it's going to affect the performance significantly. Um, so essentially her character starts out as sort of your usual, uh, manic pixie dream girl. Like that's kind of how she comes across. And I remember thinking like, nah, that's not <laughs> what I want. Um, but then, you know the film decides to be even though it's uh, heavily stylized it decides it wants to start to reflect an actual relationship between actual people and so uh over time we find like that some of the some of the goofy stuff she does or some of the free-spirited stuff she does is rooted in like a very deep insecurity and uh maybe even a little bit of a little bit of obsession with uh, with her past relationship and uh, her, her own frustration with her own choices. And so I feel like she manages to... Well, and that's the thing is... 
while she's being the manic pixie dream girl, she has to, as an actress, not fully commit to that because she know the the character knows that that's not who she is. It's just who she wishes she were, but also that it's part of her. It's just not maybe as as visible a part of her as she would like it to be. And so she has to sort of play this underlying, for lack of a better term, sadness, or at the very least reservation, even in scenes where she's supposed to be fun and bubbly and all that sort of thing. Um, but then when she flips, like, she can't... If she just goes... If she goes too dour with it, then it'll really seem like she's giving two different performances um, as opposed to different sides of of the same performance um, and it's a character who is herself performing a little bit and so I feel like she captures uh, all of those and makes her into a, a fully developed character that I that I think is you know completely charming and obviously deeply flawed and it can be very difficult when when playing those two different aspects to not let one uh, sort of take over the other but she manages to, to do both and I think uh, it's a really remarkable performance. Uh, yeah, I, um, I I like the movie. Um, I think uh, as a comedy more than yeah. other things. Um, and uh, I, I'm a sucker for a pun, and I love that they <laughs> oh, get yeah. Mexican food from a place called Love Guacchuli. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I'm. Uh, I'm skeptical of Mexican food in London, but I know <laughs> yeah. I know that it has become more of a thing and there was even there's even like a Michelin starred Mexican restaurant in London mm-hmm. now. But uh I, I, that's what I was thinking during watching yeah. the movie. I was like, I wonder if that's any good at all, Mexican <laughs> food. Uh but love guacamole, that's pretty funny. Yeah. All right. Final category. Final category What's it be? is supporting actor. All right. Scott, take us away. I went with uh, Kiefer Sutherland in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Oh, yeah. shit. Did we pick the same person? Yes, I have them in a scramble for a backup. Oh, damn. That's, that's crazy. That's exactly what I had. <laughs> that is wild. Um, yeah. So uh, we talked about this on our Friedkin Profile episode, but um, I just, the film as a whole is a really smart modernization of um, the text and keeps and in fact i think enhances all of its kind of like moral contradictions and uncertainties and i really think that sutherland's performance is very key to um finding ways to express that in giving us somebody who's um built up a degree of certainty in his life that's come as much from routine and habit as anything else and when he's finally put under examination of that doesn't really have a lot of places to go in terms of explaining himself but is also frustrated that he has to explain himself but is submissive to the process and um wants to be kind of a good soldier in giving himself over while also feeling like he's built up a degree of goodwill that he shouldn't need to be and there's all these great contradictions that aren't explicated in the text he doesn't really have a huge meltdown where he lays all this out. It's just all kind of in his physicality, that kind of habit he does with his hand, um, and in the way he like dodges with his eyes, trying to have a direct answer to any given question and tries to give like the softest answer. Um, And it's just a really smart performance that is 
kind of a scene ceiling performance, but not in a way we typically think of. Um, he's just really fascinating to look at and really fascinating to consider as kind of a person who's at the center of this inquiry, but um, only has so much control over himself in order to answer for it and really adds then to the film's ambiguity in terms of how much we can know because this is a guy who hasn't really had to confront himself um, and is being forced to for the first maybe the first time Um, so yeah uh, let David say something about it at least because it was his impulsive choice (laughs) yeah um, yeah I guess um, Kiefer Sutherland you know especially like post 24 Jack Bauer has um, come to be he's you know he's kind of a a rugged tough guy action star type of persona but my favorite performances are when we're reminded that he could be a bag of uh, neuroses you know like this or melancholia or fire walk with me or um i feel like dark city maybe dark city yeah and i'm sure this isn't these aren't good movies but soft place in my soft spot in my heart for the young guns movies because i watched them so much as a kid um uh yeah so it's fun to get him see him flex muscles you know that's because in some ways he is like or at least thinks of himself as the 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 self-possessed man of action yeah. type um but he's yeah he's also uh the the paranoic um so as a last minute replacement um and just to continue to needle scott because he <laughs> hates this movie i'm going to pick greg turkington in fremont oh god uh, <laughs> the worst part of that movie <laughs> uh, but uh, part of this is just surprise because if you know greg turkington you probably know him as neil hamburger the uh, his comic persona uh who he performed stand-up as for years and years and then did a whole movie as uh, with uh, Rick Alverson's entertainment. Yeah. Um, and his uh, his therapist here is uh, much different, much um, gentler, but also equally funny in his own way. The, I mean, most of the funniest stuff that happens uh, in, in the movie, I think, uh, is is him you know um uh you know even like in the middle of her breakthrough about uh white fang uh and and he starts crying he reads from white fang which is a very moving part but then he starts crying but then she refers to white fang as a dog and like through his snot and tears he's like he's a wolf (laughs) um uh i like that stuff and also because i saw I, i i think i talked about this on um our needle drops episode actually uh i went to a q a i saw a screen they had a q a afterwards with um the star and the uh director and greg turkington and he talked about how he's you know as a stand-up or in entertainment or in the comedy in the rick alverson movie or even in like fucking ant-man or whatever he's generally been cast by people who want him to improvise because that's what he does mm-hmm. and he couldn't improvise almost at all in this movie partially because the the actress's English is even worse than the characters is supposed to be. So if he improvised, she would lose her place in the, in the script. So like, um, I'm picking him as a last minute pick to replace Kier Sutherland, uh, partially because I know this was, this is such a, a different, uh, role for him. All right. Stay in your lane, Greg Turkington. I'm, (laughs) I'm, uh, yeah, I, I had heard about Freeman. I haven't watched it yet. 
Uh, but when I found out that he was in it, I was actually more inclined to watch it because I'm kind of a Turkington head. Um, right. Okay, yeah. so, boy, so I've got two options here, and I, and I, I think both of them are amazing, and I'm not sure which one to talk about. Is this why you made this category last? You thought yeah. there'd be some inspiration I mean, strike? And you still well, didn't decide. And, and why I insisted, Scott, that you go first, because <laughs> I thought you might have one of these. Oh, guys. dang. Okay. Well, um, we should at least mention both. Okay. Yeah, all right. So one is Dave Batista in Knock at the Cabin. I certainly thought about him. Yeah. Um, but again, he was on my top. The film was on my top 10 list, right, so I wouldn't right. have uh, factored in. Uh, and then the second one is uh, Donnie Yen in John Wick Chapter 4. Another one I definitely considered. Yeah. I, uh, I think I'll go with Donnie Yen. Um, even though, I mean, I feel like I could write an entire paper about what Dave Batista is doing in Knock at the Cabin. It's really amazing. Um, but Donnie Yen... So, David, I remember you and I, when we talked about um, Don't Breathe, okay. something that we liked was that even in the midst of, like, a chase scene within the house um uh the the blind man would occasionally like touch parts of the room as because you know he needs to know where he is and that's the only way to do it and so one thing that i love about this character in john wick is that he is always completely aware of his surroundings and you see the various ways that he gets in touch with them whether it be like sort of sliding along uh, like um, a cabinet or whatever you want to call it uh, in the kitchen um, and he's just you know it's hard to believe that a blind character could do as much damage as he does so they really need to sell it in a in a, in a universe where there's a lot of outlandish things going on uh, and I think they do sell it and I think Donnie Yen absolutely sells it by you know, this character is blind, so he has to be so reliant on his body, uh, even if he wasn't constantly fighting and killing people. Um, and so he makes his character... I mean, I, this is not, like, a hard thing for Ta Donnie Yen to do, but, like, the character is just so physical uh, and just so in tune with every tiny thing that he might touch and knowing, like, what that might mean. Uh... And the character, like, on top of that, like, making this character's life even vaguely feasible to the viewer, but then also adding in layers of, of uh, being sympathetic um, so that we, you know, we're, it's a tough situation where, like, of course we're rooting for John Wick, but for John Wick to win, it means this guy has to lose. Right. And we don't want him to lose. And so, like, he had to be very much... He couldn't just be, like, a sympathetic villain. Because we still root for them to lose. He has to be basically, like, a co-hero. And certainly the hero in his own movie. And so he manages to layer on all these things so that the film could... When the film veers off to follow him, we're just as excited, if not more so, than when we're following John. And so I think it's a very confident performance. And I think, again, it's just a very... A common thing that I've been saying uh, uh, today is I really like performances that are like in the moment and by the nature of the character, Donnie Yen has to be in the moment. He can't think about like 
He can't be distant. Uh, he can't be preoccupied because everything about this character's life and the limitations that he has requires him to be completely tactile with the environment around him and the circumstances around him. And I think he does just a wonderful job with that. Um, yeah, everything you said, and also um, a couple of other things. I like that he's he is a one of the badass action stars of the movie, but he's also in a lot of times the movie's comic relief oh, yeah. at oh, the yeah. same time, which is which is great. And and part of that is that I love that like for three movies so far, we've seen a world that is so governed by these rules. And every character seems to either be strictly adhering to the rules or radically rebelling against them. Right. He's a guy who's just like, yeah, I guess these are the rules that I have to follow <laughs> to do this. And just, yeah. like, he has this kind of like, all right, you know, like, yeah. you know, sometimes, you, you know, you like, I love my job, but then sometimes there's little like administrative things that yeah. I have to <laughs> And that kind of feels like how he... Uh, uh, how he approaches yeah. approaches things. Yeah, he's like, both, uh, uh, he's like Nick Nolte. He's <laughs> like ah hell. Yeah, I, you and you and I both uh, nominated him for BPs, but I, I did too. Any, yeah, oh, really? I think we all had him too far down on the list because yeah, it's, yeah it's, a few it's other people did too. Yeah, so he didn't didn't make the cut for the BP nomination. That's right. too bad. And he's just so cool. Yeah, I don't really have usually that thing of like. The male thing of like, oh, that action star is so cool. But Donnie Yen, John Wick yeah. 4, yeah, he's yeah, so he's cool. cool. Yeah. Um, I did, I, I think she's in the movie too much. Speaking of John Wick and the BPs, I considered Rina Sawayama for the McGill, but I think she might be in the movie too much. Who does she play? She's the uh, concierge slash daughter at the Japanese. Oh, the man. Close. It's real yeah. close. I um, would guess she's in it too much. Partially just because that movie's pretty long yeah. and she takes up a sizable part. And also because this is a super technicality. But we talked... My, my right. specific rule for McGill is that it has to be not just 15 minutes of screen time, but 15 minutes from first to last appearance. If you stayed to the end credits of oh, John wow. Luke Chapter 4, <laughs> uh, it's way after more than 15 minutes. It's three hours later. And, and oh, interesting. She's in the, she's in the, the end credits scene. I did not know that was uh, one of your dumb rules. Uh, I, we've talked about it before. I know. I guess I forgot. Huh. Because I feel like that's the nature of the Bruce Bruce McGill I, I'd say that's probably true, yes. Is, is that it's not just that 15 minutes. It's that he's yeah. basically got two scenes back I, and back. And then I think out. almost by default it winds up being that. I don't like know, but like that I think about the, the the one I always point out is that Jenny Slate for On the Rocks got the nomination. She's sure. in the whole movie. She's just in little yeah, little yeah. Bits. All right, uh, that's it. Yeah, that's the episode. You can find reviews of a bunch of these movies at battleshipretention.com. You can email us at david at or tyler at Find me on Twitter or Blue Sky at Davey Pretension on Letterboxd at David Bax. My other podcast that I do with my wife is called The One Where I Met Your Mother. You can find that at BattleshipPretension.com. That's what I got going on. Uh, Tyler, what do you got going on? Uh, not much these days. Uh, once again, uh, check out the uh, the GoFundMe uh, to help me pray for my physical therapy and my mental therapy as well as... Uh, uh, a dedicated CNA. We're getting to the point where, I mean, we've got a sizable chunk of money, um, but we still have a ways to go. And so, but we're getting to the point where 
I can probably start hiring people, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshipretention.com, and there's a video accompanying it yeah. um, that tells you exactly how the money that that, that uh, uh, you'll, you'd be donating is going to be spent. Yeah, Scott. Uh, yeah, Twitter and Blue Sky, Rail of Tomorrow, and just Scott and I at Letterboxd. And that's it. I will have a review up on the site, not quite by the time this episode goes up, of the new Criterion release of Nothing But a Man. Nice. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Scott, for joining us. Yep. Uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.